Okay, I think uh, it was a really long reading by Jane, and uh, I guess uh, she got the short end of the straw, because all of them will be a lot shorter after this, but I thought she did a good job. Okay, let's go to God in prayer as we commit to Him ourselves and uh, the ability to understand His Word. Dear Father, as we come before you today, your words have so much to say to us, they have so much weight and so much profundity, and we cannot really grasp it all with our limited knowledge. But we pray for your Holy Spirit to be guiding us, to be counselling us, to be teaching us, so that we will know the superiority and the greatness of Jesus and what he means to us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, many of you know that my uh, grandfather is very old and uh, he could die any time. And he was talking to my son the other day and he was saying about how scared he was of dying. In fact, what he said was that he was very scared of closing his eyes to sleep at night because he didn't know whether he would open them again in the morning. And I, go, I suppose that's why every time I see my grandfather, I always tell him uh, and pray for him that he's right with God. Because like Woody Allen said, I'm not scared of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And I think that's in a way true, isn't it? Uh, all of us, in a way, have a, a fear a real fear of death and I think that part of that fear comes from I guess the, the sneaking suspicion that perhaps we have unfinished business with God uh, you know that somehow we need to be right with God and if I die right now if I die right here uh, I'm not right with him and that's why whenever I meet up with my grandfather and I pray with him and for him I always remind him that in Jesus Christ he is right that he is right with God that he is at peace with God because of Jesus. Because I was reading a, another book a while ago about a, a very famous entertainer, and he himself was also scared to go to sleep at night. And he was telling this Christian man that uh, the main reason he was scared to go to sleep at night was because he had done many bad things wrong in his life, and he knew that he was not right with God. And he was scared that if he went to sleep and didn't wake up, he wouldn't have time to put it right with God. Now this man, this famous entertainer, obviously lives in California and Los Angeles. So part of the problem was that he didn't know how to get right with God. You know, what should he do? Should he try to be religious, go to church, pray and sing songs? Should he do good things to offset his bad things? Should he go to the desert to meditate? Should he do some chanting? Should he beat some drums? Should he go to the temple? Should he practice transcendental meditation? Should he join, join the Church of Scientology like Tom Cruise? Right? Because obviously they live in California and Los Angeles. There are all these options open to them, right? So he was really lost and he didn't know how to be right with God. Now I think that as we come to the book of Hebrews, we, we recognize that the, the writer was writing to a group of Christians, probably Hebrew Christians. And these Christians, they already had the solution to the problem of death. They really had the solution to the problem of being right with God, and that was Jesus. But there were these voices whispering in their ear that maybe they should move to another solution. They should move to the solution of temple, temple worship. The solution of sacrifice, the solution of the Old Testament covenant. And there was a great temptation for them to move away from Jesus. Now, as we've seen over the last few weeks, um, the writer of the book Hebrews keeps telling us just how Jesus is everything that we need. And last week we saw that Jesus was the perfect high priest. He was eternal, perfect and sinless. He was the better priesthood. 
And this week, as we look at chapter 8 and 9, he turns his sights on everything associated with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Okay, so if you think of the things which are associated with the priesthood, what are they? So if you look up here in the slide, there's the idea of where the priest serves. Okay, where does the priest serve? Well, the priest serves in the sanctuary, in the temple. And what is the primary role or the primary duty of the priest? The primary duty of the priest is to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And how does the priest serve? How, how is the framework of his service set out? Well, it's set out in the Old Covenant. And in chapter 8 and 9, basically, the writer of the book of Hebrews deals with all these separate issues which are related with the priesthood. So now that he's shown the superiority of Jesus and the priesthood, he then deals with all the associated elements which are linked to the priesthood of Jesus. So let's look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says here in verse 1, now the main point of what we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest, and we've already looked at chapter 7, and that high priest is Jesus who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If you were on earth, you would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And this is why Moses warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, we already saw that in the book of Exodus, Moses was given like a blueprint of a tabernacle or sanctuary or, or a mobile tent a mobile temple where the people were meant to worship God, okay? where the priests were meant to perform their religious duties. Okay? And uh, I, I'm very helpful. Next slide. Okay, so I, uh, you all recognize this. You all do the Bible study, right? I thought, right, I'll just copy what Joshua already had. So this is a copy of the, of the, the or, or schematic anyway, of the mobile tent that the Jews were to set up everywhere they went. This is the tabernacle. This is the sanctuary. Okay? Now, afterwards, when uh, the, the Israelites went into the Promised Land and they set up their capital in Jerusalem and King David was there, King Solomon built the temple. And basically, the temple was a bigger, more permanent version of the tabernacle. Right? So, we don't actually have it anymore because obviously all, that, all that's left is one wall. Okay, but this is sort of a model of it. Uh, next slide. This is another model of it. And this was a, a very, very majestic thing, right? It was a very majestic thing for the Jews and, and something, something that the Jews took great pride in. Now, the problem is, if you look at this passage, in verse 1 to 5, it says that as majestic and as great as the temple was, as impressive as it was, what was it? In verse 5, they serve as a sanctuary that is a, a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Right? So the Jews took great, great stock in this temple, and they, they felt that as long as we have the temple, God was with us, right? We don't have to be worried because God lives in the temple. But the Bible actually says that this temple that we're so proud of was merely a copy, a shadow, of, like a, a pattern of the real thing. Now, uh, I was going to bring, uh, my, my son makes these uh, things called nano blocks, right? And, yeah, I was going to bring it, but uh, 
but we knocked it over and got destroyed. So anyway, this is what this is what it looks like, okay? Um, and uh, so these are like these nano blocks, right? You can build these uh, small size things of real objects. Uh, next slide, okay? You can I don't know, they're quite expensive. And, and obviously, no one would mistake this for the Empire State Building, right? Because it's just made of nanoblocks. But that is exactly the mistake that the Jews were making. They were mistaking their temple for the real place that God lived in. But you see, the temple could never be the place where God lives in because God doesn't live in the temple. The temple is only a copy. God lives in heaven. And that's why it says there, in verse 2, isn't it? That the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, is the one in heaven, set up by the Lord and not by mere human beings. Because the true tabernacle must be where God lives and not a copy. Now, in chapter 9, uh, if you look at chapter 9, uh, it sort of tells us a bit more about the tabernacle and what's inside the tabernacle. Okay, so in verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, it talks about the details of the tabernacle. So it says in uh, verse 2, A tabernacle was set up, and the first room with a lampstand, and the table with consecrated bread, and this was called the, the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense, and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the covenant, the, sorry, the atonement cover. So again, we, we need to go back to this uh, diagram that we saw. Okay, next one, sorry. The, ah, this one, great. That's good, thanks. So you see that in this place is the holy place, alright? This is where uh, the other priests serve. Inside here, in a smaller room, I guess I could have made a scale model here, but it wouldn't work. But if you imagine, this is the holy place. This is the most holy place. And this is where, basically, only the high priest, once a year, was able to go in. And what is so special about this room? What is in this room? Well, it says in this room that there are three things, isn't it, that were in the ark. A gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Now, these things don't mean very much to us, but in every way, these are, I guess, symbols or mementos or remembrances of God's powerful acts in, his, God's, in, in, in Israel's history, right? So the manna in the jar was, was a remembrance of what God had done when he had provided miraculous food for God's people when they were wandering to the desert. Aaron's staff was a remembrance of how uh, God had provided a priesthood for God's people. And the stone tablets were a remembrance of God actually writing down the law and giving it to Moses on the mountain. Right? So, so they were very powerful reminders of God. But even more important in verse 5, it talks about <clears throat> above the ark was the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atonement cover. Okay, so now next slide. Now, obviously this is not the ark, okay? This is just a recreation of the ark. And, and, 
and inside the ark were all those things, right? The, the manna, the uh, Aaron's staff, as well as the stone tablets. But these things are the cherubim. You see these angelic beings with the wings outstretched over the top of the atonement cover. Next slide. So this, this one, I guess it's visually a bit different. So these are the cherubim with their wings above the atonement cover. And for the Jews, uh, as we read uh, the Old Testament, God was symbolically or representatively supposed to have his presence here in between the cherubim. Right? So if you look at Psalm chapter 80, there are other parts of the Bible as well, you can look it up in your own free time. It says, Hear, hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim. You see, God is symbolically right, or representatively supposed to be present at the top of the ark between the cherubim. So the point of this whole passage is God's presence is there in between the cherubim only representatively, only as a symbol. He's not really, really there. I mean, God is not so small as to be, you know, like have a place in between the cherubim. Surely God must be bigger than that. And where is he? Well, he is truly in heaven. That is the true sanctuary. That is where heaven is. And that's why it says that Jesus serves where God really is, the real sanctuary, not the copy in which the priests of the Levites served in. And in verse 2, it goes on to say that this true tabernacle was set up by God and not by human beings. You see, how can God actually live in a place built by man's hands. Uh, no matter how impressive we make something, it can never be big enough, grand enough for God to live in. Right? That, that was the problem of the Jews. They thought that, okay, as majestic as the temple was, this is where God is, he's at the top of the cherubim. It failed to understand that actually God lives in a much bigger place, in a much grander place. So in Acts chapter 7, Next slide. It says, uh, but it was Solomon who built the house for him, right? So the temple was built by King Solomon, not David. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And the whole point here is, there is no point going back to the temple. There is no point seeking God in the temple because God actually exists in heaven in a place not made by hands, by human hands. And Jesus doesn't serve in the earthly temple. He serves in the real deal, in the real temple. So instead of following the Levitical priests who serve in the small copy, it's better to follow Jesus who serves in the heavenly sanctuary where God really is. Now, the passage then goes on and says, okay, look, Jesus is a superior priest who serves in a superior sanctuary where God lives. But more than that, the covenant that Jesus brings in or mediates is superior to the old covenant. So why, why do you want to go back to the old covenant? Because Jesus has brought in a superior new covenant. In chapter 8, verse 6, it says, But in fact, 
The ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. Now, if you actually look at uh, um, this passage, I, I know that uh, it's very heavy going, you know, it's a bit like, um, I guess, eating a big steak, but you, you can't cut it up, right? There's just too much information here. But the main thing that we're looking at is the temple and covenant. Now, what is covenant? What is this covenant that uh, Jesus brings in, which is superior to the old covenant? Now, the old covenant was like a contract, a deal, which God made with the people in Israel. Right? The, the, the old covenant. And this can be found in Exodus chapter 24, which is up here. Okay? When Moses went and told the people all, the, all of the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Then Moses took, sorry, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this was the covenant that God made with his people in Israel. The problem was that they repeatedly broke their promise. They said, we will obey. But they did not obey. Over and over again, they did not obey. So what did God do? Well, God promised a new covenant. Right? And in Jeremiah, which is quoted here, uh, actually this is the longest quote from the Old Testament, in the New Testament, God promised that he would bring a new covenant to the people. So if you look here in chapter 8, Verse 8 onwards, right? God says very clearly through the prophet Jeremiah that the old covenant will be taken away and he will bring a new covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turn away from them, declares the Lord. See, so the old covenant was not going to work because the people were not faithful. But God says in verse 10, these wonderful words, This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, if you actually look at the promises of the new covenant, there are really three things, right, that are involved. 
If you look up here in the slide, I summarized it for you. There will be real obedience in verse 10. God will put the laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. And the second thing is there will be real relationship with God because it says, I will be their God and they will be their people and they won't have to tell each other no the Lord because they will all know me. But you notice what happens here in verse 12. Verse 12 is very important, right? So look at verse 12. It says, For or because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. You see, point one and two. Oh, I didn't put numbering. Okay, it doesn't matter, but you can count, right? Point one and two cannot happen without three. There cannot be real obedience and real relationship with God without forgiveness. That's what Jeremiah says in verse 12. These things can only happen only because God will choose to forgive His people. And that's why the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Because of four, Jesus brings in this forgiveness which allows a real relationship and a real obedience to God. See, the old covenant could never bring forgiveness. The old covenant could never bring uh, the removal of sin or the cleansing of sin from people. And that's why the old covenant was flawed, obsolete. It, once Jesus came and brought forgiveness, then the old covenant was passing away or dying and the new covenant comes into effect. Now, as we look at the Bible... Over and over again, the Old Testament shows us that forgiveness only comes from blood. Okay, blood. Blood is a very important theological theme, right? especially in this section. Blood is required for forgiveness. Okay? If you look at the whole of chapter 9, I, I'm not going to read the whole of chapter 9 because it's very long, but if you, look, if you bother going through the whole of chapter 9, the word blood is repeated nine times. And basically, the whole of chapter 9 goes on to say that the blood of the bulls and goats in the Old Testament sacrificial system could not bring forgiveness. But the blood of Jesus brings complete and eternal forgiveness. See, it says there in uh, verse 6 to verse 10, it sort of repeats exactly what the high priest does, right? And what does the high priest do? What is his main job? Well, it says there in verse 6, well, everything was arranged and the priest entered regularly into the outer room. So if you look at that table again. So the priest, the normal priest, they all went there all the time to carry out their ministry. But in verse 7, only the high priest entered the inner room, the inner room where God's presence was, the most holy place. And he only entered once a year and never without the B word, blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people uh, that had been committed in ignorance. But the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings 
external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So if you look up here again, if this is where God is, if this is where God symbolically is, where the ark is, and only the high priest can enter this place once a year with lots of blood and only for a short time, then what does it show? It shows that actually the blood of the bulls, of the sacrifices, are not very effective, isn't it? Because after you kill all these animals, only one person can go into God's presence once a year for a short time. And if you have to do it year after year, it shows that this is not working, right guys? Because only one person can go and meet God and only for a little while. So therefore, what it's actually showing is that this Old Testament way of sacrificing the bulls is just a ceremonial external uh, cleansing. It doesn't really cleanse your conscience. It doesn't cleanse you on the inside. It only cleanses you externally. Alright? So that's why the next slide. Okay, so basically the blood of the bulls, of the, of the sacrificial animals, they just basically cleanse on the outside. It has to be done year after year after year and it's not effective. But by contrast, look at the blood of Jesus Christ. Alright, look at the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is so much better. In fact, uh, in the title of my NIV, it says the blood of Christ, right? But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that was not made with human hands, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Now, we can always say, well, why does Jesus Christ have to shed blood to enter into God's presence in the most holy place? Because Jesus Christ is perfect, right? It's like he can wander into the presence of his Father anytime he wants. He doesn't need to shed blood. But he sheds his own blood. Why? In verse 13, to obtain eternal redemption for his people. The blood of bulls and goats allows the high priest to go in once a year. The blood of Jesus Christ is so effective that allows all people to enter into God's presence. See, what is this idea of redemption? Okay, redemption is not a word that uh, we use very often. In fact, I, I'm sure if you read the newspaper or, or internet, when do you ever come across this word redemption, right? Manchester United redeem, redeem Arsenal. I mean, what, what, what sort of word is this redemption word? Redemption literally is a, an old-fashioned word to talk about buying back the freedom of slaves. Right? So it's like you're a slave, you're in bondage, you're in slavery. Someone wants to set you free, we need to redeem you, right? redeem you and bring you back to freedom. So what does it mean here? Jesus' blood is so effective that he frees us from the bondage of our sin and judgment and allows us to come into the presence of God himself in the most holy place. I was often uh, struck once before, before I, I, mean, I guess when I was becoming a Christian, someone once said, you know, salvation is free. It's free. We just believe in Jesus. 
But salvation is costly because it's paid by the blood of Jesus. It's free for us. It's, it's free for us because Jesus paid with His costly blood. See, we have been set free because Jesus paid with His blood to set us free from our sin and our judgment. Verse 15 has the same idea as uh, verse 12, isn't it? It says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. See, the idea of redemption and the idea of ransom are very similar. See, apart from they both start from R, okay? Ransom is the idea of where someone is again kidnapped under control of somebody else and they need to be set free. And how are they set free? They're set free because someone pays a ransom. I remember reading uh, many years ago that Colombia was the kidnapped capital of the world. And there was this woman who, whose father was kidnapped by these criminals and the family was too poor to pay for the ransom. But this eldest daughter exchanged herself for her father in the hope that they would be able to earn the money to eventually pay the ransom for the whole family to be free. But unfortunately, she exchanged herself for the father, but they never could pay the money and she was eventually killed and murdered. And I was thinking to myself, that's exactly like what Jesus does, isn't it? As a ransom, he gives his life to set us free, but he dies in our place. And that's what blood really means when you think of it. See, when the Bible talks about blood, right, it's not like giving blood at the hospital, okay? Blood literally means the life of something. The life is found in the blood of something. So in uh, the very first book of uh, the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, you can look it up yourself, when Cain kills Abel, God says, Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground, right? So blood represents life. You know, the, the shedding of blood means death. Jesus gave his life for us as a ransom. And what Jesus did was so powerful, not does he only bring in the new covenant because he brings forgiveness through his blood, it is effective to the whole of eternity. Look at what it says there in verse 15. It says there, he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. That means Jesus' death is not just effective for all of us today as Christians. Jesus' death was effective for the people who died even before Jesus was born in the first covenant. So if you think about it, it's like this picture, right? I sort of made this picture. Jesus' blood is like retrospectively works backwards and looks forward in the future and is able to cleanse and bring forgiveness for all people working backwards into the past and forwards into the future. And that's why if you come to the very end of the chapter, it says this really strange thing, right? Which, which it takes a bit to figure out. But in verse 26 it says, Otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of 
himself. See, the coming of Jesus is like the high point of history. It's like the culmination of ages. It's like the, the culmination of everything. Because it brings forgiveness for the whole world in the past and the future. Now, that's why the death of Jesus is so significant. And that's why Jesus is so significant. Because he serves at the greater temple. He brings forgiveness and therefore the new covenant. And he is, his blood is truly effective. Because it's the high point, there's no point going back to the temple for the Jew or going back to the sacrifices or going back to the priesthood. And there's no point going forward to something else because once you're the high point, there is nowhere else to go. Now I know for ourselves, we're used to change. Right? I remember uh, I go shopping my wife uh, quite regularly. And uh, I, I don't know about other men, but I, I know sometimes I find shopping a bit tiring, tedious. And what I really look forward to when I go shopping is when I go with my wife, sometimes she's shopping and then I see my salvation, which is the, the Harvey Norman or the best Denki shop. So then I'll just walk in there, watch TV or you know, listen to the music or whatever. But when you go into the best Denki or the Harvey Norman electronic shops or whatever, it's also not very helpful because you realize that, hey, all these TVs seem to be sharper than the TV I'm watching right now. Right? What's wrong with my TV? And all these phones and all these gadgets seem to be better than the ones I have at home. And I guess, in a sense, they are better, right? Because it's a new model, new technology and everything else. But it's not like that with Jesus, you see. There is no newer model of Jesus. There is no better version of Jesus. There is nothing to move forward to. Uh, because he is the culmination of the ages. He is at the high point. And I think that that's so important for us as Christians to hear. Obviously, we are not like the Hebrew Christians. We have no temptation to go back to the temple. We have no temptation to go back to other priests or animal sacrifices. I can't imagine us wanting to kill bulls or anything. But there is the temptation, I suppose, for us to not see Jesus for as great as he is. We think that, okay, we need salvation. Okay, is, is Jesus enough? And we are tempted to have Jesus plus something else. So we think, okay, I've got Jesus, I've got Jesus, but then I've also got to be able to speak in tongues. Or I've got Jesus, but I also need prosperity. I've got Jesus, but I also need Mother Mary. I've got Jesus, but I also need a special baptism. So a few uh, months ago, a long-time Christian friend of mine who used to serve with me in the, in the youth ministry somewhere else before, called me up. And he said that he was very, very influenced by his boss at work who was a Christian, a very sincere Christian man, and invited him to church and he'd been going to this new church. But they told him that in order to be saved, he had to be re-baptized because they didn't believe in the baptism that he had performed in his old church. And he also had to do some spiritual act, either speak in tongues or do some prophecy or do some miracle. But actually, when you look at what Jesus has done, all you need is Jesus. You don't need anything else for salvation. Because Jesus is like the high point of history. His blood is what saves you, not your speaking in tongues, not your baptism. His blood is what brings forgiveness. So, all you need is Jesus. You don't need Jesus plus something else. Now, if you look at the very, very last verse, it tells us, 
that what Jesus has done has, has, has sort of, within the time frame of history, is, is limited in a sense, isn't it? Because in verse 27 it says, just as, the, as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, I've read this passage many times before, but I never really reflected on it uh, in a really serious way. But if you think of it, this timeline is kind of incomplete, isn't it? Because actually there will be a time where the forgiveness that Jesus brings, the, the time for bearing sin, will come to an end. Okay, the next slide. And that's where Jesus will come again to bring people to salvation. Because this is what it says very clearly in verse 28, isn't it? Christ was sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, I think that that's good news for all of us who believe in Jesus, but also bad news. Because it means that the time for bearing sin will come to an end when Jesus comes again. And for us who are saved, that's fantastic. When Jesus comes, we'll be saved. But when Jesus comes and we are not in Christ, then there will be no salvation for us. As I was reading this passage, um, one of my uncles has just flown off back to uh, Switzerland. I've shared him with you before. And and he still has not accepted Jesus Christ as his saviour. I was talking to him a while ago, and his way of getting right with God is to pop into what he says, some holy place, and and say a prayer prayer to God, and he comes out feeling a lot better. Now, to me, that is just one of his ways of many ways in the world of getting right with God and overcoming the fear of death. But there's only really one way, one exclusive way. Uh, that's ex- you know, it's offensive to the world to say that there's only one way to get right with God. There's only one way to avoid death and punishment. But if Jesus' blood does all the things that it says that it does, then there can only be one way. And for my uncle to say that, well, he can pop into some temple or holy place or a church anywhere and pray to God and God forgives him, is an illusion. It's a, it's a fallacy. It's a, it's, it's a total tragedy. Because one day, when the time for bearing sin is over, and Jesus comes again, it will be too late for my uncle. So I think that as we look at this passage, it doesn't really give us an exaltation in it, isn't it? it just tells us what Jesus has done. But I think the implications are very clear. Jesus is superior and better in every way. Just hold on to Jesus, no matter what. Don't add on anything to Jesus. And whatever you do, recognize that He is the only way to be right with God and to escape the punishment of judgment, hell and death. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we know that it may be difficult for us as we look at this passage to really get into what the Hebrew Christians were struggling with, with the temple, with the animal sacrifices, with the priesthood, with the blood. But help us to overcome all that cultural and historical difference to see the reality of who Jesus is. That He is the only way to be saved, that He is the only way that forgiveness can come into our lives, 
that He is the only way that the new covenant is effective for us, that it is the only way because His blood is effective in a way that no other blood can be. Help us to give thanks from the bottom of our hearts for the redemption that it has brought us, that He has brought freedom from our sin and our slavery to hell and judgment, that He has ransomed with His very own death on the cross ourselves and brought freedom for many. And we pray that all of us here will be part of the many who are saved and that when Jesus comes again, indeed we will all be saved and none be left behind to face your judgment. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.